This episode of Radio Atlantic is brought to you by Microsoft Copilot for Security. In the age of AI, we're empowering security teams to better detect and better defend cyber threats. Stay tuned to find out how. Immigration is one of the biggest points of fracture in American politics, and now it's back on the top of the nation's legislative agenda. Yet despite the fact that the U.S. has a major debate about the issue every couple of decades, much of America's history of immigration has been easily forgotten. What lessons does that history contain? And what's in store for the future? This is Radio Atlantic. Hi, I'm Matt Thompson, executive editor of The Atlantic. And over in New York, I am joined by my esteemed co-host, Alex Wagner, contributing editor at The Atlantic. Hello, Alex. Hello, Matt. Jeffrey Goldberg, our co-host, is off gallivanting today. Uh, Mm -hmm. However, in his place, we are joined by our colleague Priscilla Alvarez, who is one of our politics and policy editors. Welcome to the table, Priscilla. We traded up. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Agreed. We are talking today about immigration and immigrants. And we three, all three of us, are the children of immigrants to the U.S. We kicked all the Mayflower Americans out the room. <laughs> and it's just we immigrants talking today, Radio Atlantic. Immigrants get the job done. Get the job done. <laughs> now, immigration might have been the biggest issue that propelled Donald Trump into the presidency. And now the question of who gets to come into the United States and who gets to stay here is the single biggest legislative sticking point in front of Congress. That question gave us one of the most shocking phrases to reportedly emerge from the mouth of the president so far. Mom, please excuse my language. Shithole countries. The question also was one of the biggest factors in a weekend-long federal government shutdown after Senate Democrats tried, some would say half-heartedly, to force Republicans to resolve the long-term status of the group called the Dreamers. These, of course, are the unauthorized immigrants who came to the country as children and have been in limbo ever since the fall when President Trump overturned the status that let them live and work here temporarily without fear of deportation. Priscilla, back in September, we talked all about DACA, which was that temporary status that had gotten granted to the Dreamers under President Obama and then yanked away by President Trump. And listeners, I'm going to encourage you to go back and listen to that episode if you haven't. Because we talked at length about what some of what the Dreamers are going through at this moment. But Priscilla, what's changed since September? So when the Trump administration ended the DACA program in September, they did so on a six-month delay, providing a window of time for lawmakers to pass a legislative fix to this, uh, to DACA. So essentially to extend the protections on these undocumented immigrants for them to continue to live in the U.S. without fear of deportation and to continue to work in the U.S. legally. Now, what we've seen since then is an attempt to tack this on to must-pass legislation. Hence, what we saw with the shutdown only a few days ago with Democrats saying that they were not going to budge and they were not going to vote for a stopgap spending bill without any agreement on DACA. And the reason that ended is because Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said that he would um, debate, allow debate uh, on a DACA bill in the coming weeks before that February 8th deadline. And that's just to be clear, a lot of this is hinging on people's good word, right? It is. And that is where some uh, DACA recipients that I spoke to are really disappointed because they say, you know, we, we wanted Democrats to fight. And this brings us right back to square one, as one put it. 
So Congress is deciding on their fate. What could they decide? What What are the possibilities of the laws in front of them? This is where it gets really complicated. Um, so there are several factions that want different things. Um, there is passing this bill, the DREAM Act, um, which would enshrine these protections into law um, to do that clean. So that's it, um, is what some want. It's unlikely. Um, what There needs to be some sort of trade-in with a Republican administration. So there's doing that and also having a border security package. But there are also more hardline conservatives that want more than that. They want to end the diversity visa program, um, which is uh, one way of coming to the U.S. legally. Um, and they also want to um, curtail the family reunification, actually end it altogether. So these are uh, changes to the legal immigration laws in this country, um, sort of a way they say where they look at it as offsetting, providing some sort of legal status for hundreds of thousands of undocumented immigrants. It seems virtually impossible to imagine a clean passage of the DREAM Act at this point, given how fractious the debate has been on, I mean, even the right-hand side of the aisle about immigration. I guess I wonder, um, you know, the conventional wisdom says some amount of blood will be extracted by Republicans from Democrats to keep DREAMers in this country. We know that Chuck Schumer in the famous cheeseburger summit with Donald Trump last week offered a, a lot of money towards border security in exchange for uh, keeping dreamers in the country and that that was ultimately rejected. Priscilla, how likely is it that Donald Trump and his base end up actually dictating the terms of this agreement as opposed to any moderate factions of the Republican Party? So what's interesting here, right, about the dreamers is that it is a bipartisan issue in the sense that Republicans and Democrats generally agree that this segment of the undocumented population should stay in the country. In fact, a majority of Americans support that. The issue and the issue that has been longstanding for several years, because this isn't the first iteration of this bill, is that lots of different things need to want to be tacked on to it. So um, that whether that be border security, whether that be changes to illegal immigration, what we have against this right now is the time. Um, right now we're looking at February 8th as the next deadline, and it's very hard to imagine that any immigration bill will be passed and that they will come to an agreement on something before that day. Is it so that we're going to have a shutdown again? It's headed in a very <laughs> difficult direction. Um, it, I mean, it depends on who's going to give way, right? Who's going to say this is enough or we're going we're gonna to give this up. I mean, it's a, it's a tug of war between Democrats and Republicans. Now, this is the subtext of what you have just said, Priscilla. The Dreamers are part of this much, much larger group of people in America who aren't authorized to be here uh, and an even larger group of people who are here from elsewhere altogether, including many, many who are authorized to be here. Dreamers are the group that Americans all agree about, like three quarters of Americans in a remarkably consistent skein of polling agree that these folks should be allowed to live here legally. But that leaves the rest of the estimated 11 million unauthorized immigrants in the country overall. Why do we focus so much on the dreamers? Well, again, you sort of uh, get to this here. You allude to this in the fact that, yes, it is a subset that every, most people can agree on. They did not come to the U.S., of their own volition. They came here at a very young age. They were brought to the U.S. But it gets sticky because of the much broader questions, the more complex questions that come with passing any sort of immigration legislation. And remember that a lot of these recipients lived in mixed status homes. So their parents may be undocumented or another relative may be undocumented. 
So they're all interconnected, and it gets really sticky when when you start looking at it this way. So let's talk to the big question, to the meaty, real sticky question in front of us. Who gets to come? Who gets to stay? Alex, you have written for us about the long history. I mean, we talked – when we sat down in September, we talked about the fact that these questions, this question, who gets to come and who gets to stay, recurs generationally. And you have written for us about America's long and forgotten history of kicking folks out illegally. Tell us a little bit about what you learned in looking into that history. Yeah. What's so interesting about the the debate around immigration and fundamentally who belongs here is that it's cyclical and it tends to be tied to the economy in a lot of respects. And I, as part of my research for my forthcoming book and, and just generally as someone who's fascinated by immigration and the politics surrounding it, I discovered this sort of little known chapter in American history when we were actually deporting people mm-hmm. <laughs> in many cases illegally as a bid to sort of stabilize the American economy for American workers. It was a very make America great again moment, but it occurred under President Hoover and not President Trump. And effectively, in the 1920s, as the economy was crashing, President Hoover was under a lot of pressure to come up with a jobs plan for America. And one of the ways in which he did that was by slashing immigration by nearly 90 percent and effectively kicking out what is estimated to be over a million, maybe as high as 1.8 million residents here, some of whom were Americans. Wow. And the way he did that basically was targeting people with Mexican-sounding last names, which is as arbitrary a standard as you could have. Um, And if you read more about this chapter of American history, unfortunately, there's not a ton of documentation around it, and there hasn't been much in the way of chronicling um, other than a great book by author Francisco Balderrama, Effectively, what happened was Mexican-Americans were targeted at hospitals, at jobs, in their neighborhoods, at parks where they congregated, and they were thrown out by either local or state law enforcement and put on, shepherded onto trains and buses and basically driven back across the border with no explanation and dropped off many times far away from the border as far as central Mexico to prevent them from easily getting back into America. I mean, you can imagine that this was incredibly traumatic for the people who were deported. Some of them were children who were born in America and have had every right to stay in America. Um, and it effectively changed the course of history for a number of people who were American. And eventually, as the economy recovered and the wartime effort needed more sort of Mexican laborers, laborers, and in many cases, Mexican laborers, um, to build the machines of war, we allowed Mexicans back into the country. And uh, a lot of folks got back in who had been taken out. But but the hist- the chapter itself is so violent. I mean, you have stories of of men and women who were in hospitals and seen, therefore, as sucking off the social safety net with Mexican-sounding last names taken in gurneys and effectively thrown out of the country. Mm. It's staggering that this happened and that there's been almost nothing in the way of public apology, save for the lone efforts of one California congressman in particular, uh, or sorry, state representative has worked on an official apology from the state of California, but nothing has been done at the federal level And these deportations took place across the country, in Detroit, in the heartland, on the coasts. No one was really safe. 
um, from what was a totally brutalizing chapter in American history. But the language around the deportations, the language around what we needed to do in the name of sort of body purification is very frighteningly reminiscent of some of the rhetoric that we're hearing today. I mean, I think this is one of the things that's so striking about that history is that among the people rounded up were folks who were straight up bona fide Americans, American native born citizens. And so I think that's where this intersects with this question of who do we consider American, this much more fungible question of not just who's here, who gets to come here, who gets to stay here, but like who really though, but like really though? <laughs> well, and also yeah. we brings define to, as American. We, I think it goes to this question of, and I noticed this. We always say we say Mexican Americans or African Americans or Burmese Americans or Filipino American. We we never call people just Americans, which fundamental people from th- those places just Americans, right? And and it brings to the fore this separation between. American Americans who are presumably white European Americans and other Americans who somehow deserve a hyphenation. That is a great transition forward a few decades in history to uh, a really surprising fact that, Priscilla, that you brought to the attention of Atlantic readers. So to turn to this question of legal immigration, who gets to come here? Um, So one of the, the pieces of our immigration policy that is currently at issue is the diversity visa program. Tell us what that program is and where it came from. Diversity visa program allows uh, folks from around the world to come to the U.S., but it is countries and regions where they don't typically migrate to the to the U.S. So there is a quota in place for them to come here in, uh, in certain numbers. So these illegal immigrants. And tell us where that came from. Well, it was originally intended to help Irish immigrants. So in 1965, there was a law that was passed that began the family reunification program. And if you had a close relative that lived abroad um, and you were a U.S. citizen or a lawful permanent resident, then you could sponsor them to come to the U.S. But it turned out that not a lot of Irish immigrants had close relatives in the United States. So in order for them to come to the U.S., there would have to be some other program. And so in 1990, This program was put together. One of the key players, by the way, was Senator Chuck Schumer. You've probably heard his name quite a bit in the last few days. And so that program started, but it was intentional uh, to to bring Irish immigrants here. So the diversity visa was created for Irish immigrants. (laughs) That is fascinating. I mean, these were, Alex, to your point about hyphenated Americans. These were the folks who used to be the hyphens. Irish immigrants, Italian-Americans, I think one way of framing that conversation about who has a hyphen and who doesn't is to take a generational lens at the question of which Americans require qualification of some sort has shifted over time. A century ago, that hyphen might have been applied to an Irish immigrant. Depending on the generation that you're looking at, it might have gone to German immigrants or Scandinavian immigrants or Chinese immigrants or Polish ones. Well, the interesting thing about the diversity visa program, too, and what I think is an underlying theme in U.S. immigration policy is that there is some intention and purpose behind it to bring a certain immigrant to the United States, to encourage a certain immigrant to come to the United States. And that was the idea of the diversity visa program. But in fact, the percentage of those who actually came changed. So it wasn't just that 
bringing in tons of Irish immigrants. But in the end, what happened here was that um, African countries really benefit from this. And the Congressional Black Caucus is actually one of the factions in, in this whole immigration debate that is pushing really hard to keep this visa program in place. So there's always some sort of underlying intention here, but the unintended consequences always follow follow suit. Hmm. I think one of the things we have in this country is a remarkably short memory and or a thin, a weak grasp on history, to your point, Priscilla, in terms of who, how the makeup of incoming waves of migration have changed. I was listening this morning to a debate on um, public radio about who, you know, the Rays Act, which is what uh, the Senate is considering, and an advocate for the Republican Party's sort of hardline on immigration was saying that most of these immigrants that come here today aren't integrating into American society and they stay in their own enclaves and they don't speak English. And I thought, have you ever been to Little Italy? Hmm. Because that's an enclave of immigrants who came here and spoke their own language and didn't quote unquote integrate. It's really shocking how um, we forget that it was the Irish and the Italians and now it may be the Hondurans and the Guatemalans and the Guineans. But the 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 sort of <laughs> the more xenophobic impulses that lie at the root of some of these arguments really don't hold water once you start looking at how the waves of migration have been the same and different throughout time. Yeah. And I think the other part of this, too, right, is that policy, um, some of these policy changes were intended to bring immigrants that would closely resemble the demographic profile of existing American citizens. I mean, this was something, one of the underlying reasons with the diversity visa program. And it was also the case in 1965 when we saw reforms that would open up the doors to more immigrants. One of the things that was said uh, by a group back in 1965 was that they thought it would be a natural operating national origin system. So uh, that's going back to when we had a system in place that only allowed folks of certain national origin to come in a certain in a certain number. Um, so essentially, I think what you're alluding to, and I think something that's interesting in U.S. immigration policy generally, is that it's typically the underlying reason there is to create a demographic profile. It's a social engineering of a sort. Yeah, to the point about America having and us having a short attention span around these issues, we as an institution, we actually have a notable little history that sort of ties into this conversation. Nearly 25 years ago, in April 1994, The Atlantic published this story called The Ordeal of Immigration in Wausau, Wisconsin. And the story looked at what happened after this little Midwestern town in Wisconsin, Wausau, which which had been one of the whitest cities in the nation, welcomed a wave of Hmong refugees who had been displaced by conflicts in Southeast Asia. A lot of the folks locally who sponsored that resettlement were these religious organizations and local congregations and whatnot. And the story that we told, the ordeal of immigration in the piece's headline, painted a grim picture of like overtaxed social services and unassimilated immigrants in this town really struggling to grapple with this influx of Hmong immigrants. It drew, that story drew a ton of attention across the nation, and the author of the story was a fellow by the name of Roy Beck, who ended up founding, in no small part thanks to the story, Numbers USA, which is now one of the biggest outlets advocating for reduced immigration to the U.S. 
a couple years ago, we actually asked a reporter, Duali Zaikautau, to go back to Wasa and see how the town was faring almost a quarter century later. And what she found was a pretty different picture from, from the one that Roy Beck saw. Hmong immigrants and their children by that point were a pretty well-integrated minority in Wasa. There's still some racial tension, of course, and there's still some Hmong residents who would tell you that they felt unwelcome there. But by measures of like educational attainment and crime and violence and socioeconomic success, they've actually done pretty well for themselves. Oh, isn't it funny how that works? <laughs> I mean, did the reporter ascribe the integration to any sort of factors in particular? Part of it was just time, I think. Time and the dedication among the immigrants and some of the locals to really thread these newcomers into the fabric of this community. A writer for the Wausau Daily Herald also talked to Roy Beck a couple decades after the story ran about that sense that the city had actually integrated pretty nicely. And, and Beck said that it was great that it mostly worked out for Wassa. Quote, the fact that Wassa overcame it or adjusted, that's great, Beck said. But why should any community be forced to have to work so hard? Uh, and Beck acknowledged to the writer himself that a lot of the pressures of immigration can ease with time. He just argues that the rate of immigration needs to be better controlled so that those stresses aren't placed on communities. And so the fact that Wasa is doing more or less OK, at least from what what these reports say, is mostly because of this same thing that we're talking about, of time, of generations passing and I would say, uh, you know, Matt, you bring up evangelical groups or Christian groups and business leaders, both of whom, when it concerns the question of immigration, have actually cited traditionally more moderate with more moderate voices and sometimes even democratic voices. Evangelicals and Christians have been really concerned about uh, welcoming migrants into this country, as is the Christian way. And there have been a number of articles detailing the efforts they've made in border states um, to make sure that those coming across the border or those being pushed back over it are getting the adequate uh, help they need. And business interests are very much aligned with having a robust and, and relatively progressive immigration policy. But it's weird because in this present moment, I feel like we haven't heard that much from either one of those factions, and both of them carry some sway with the Republican Party. Yeah, absolutely, especially when it comes to the, the conversation about refugees, too. Well, and I think they also, I mean, a lot of these migrants make up so much of these of their communities. I think that was uh, our colleague Emma Green wrote a story about the U.S. Catholic Church and how they're pushing back against the Trump administration ending temporary protected status for Salvadorans. And a big part of that is because these uh, Salvadorans make up a large part of that community, and and so they sort of service that and uh, are pushing back against some of the administration's moves on immigration. We're entering a new era of security. Cyber threats are escalating rapidly. And while tech alone can't eliminate every threat, it can empower security teams to quickly respond to incidents at scale. Microsoft is transforming the industry by innovating to arm teams with the resources necessary to outpace adversaries and operate at machine speed. Microsoft Copilot for Security, powered by generative AI, works alongside defenders. Stay tuned to learn more about Copilot's capabilities after the episode.
some of the biggest political disagreements and I think some of the most deeply felt attitudes driving President Trump's success in attaining the presidency and the continued uh, dialogue that we see about immigration today is not about illegal immigration necessarily. It's about who we get to call Americans. It's about precisely about legal immigrants in many cases, about folks like the Hmong in Wausau who were welcomed here, brought here, and made lives here. And so I wanted to turn in our conversation towards those legal immigrants, towards folks like us, <laughs> um, uh, none of whom would have been in this country had our parents not started somewhere else and wanted to become Americans. Priscilla, is is this a unique quality of America that we have this kind of cyclical divide every generation about who gets to call themselves really fundamentally American? Yeah, Alex pointed out earlier, I mean, immigrate, this, this whole debate is so cyclical on the fact that we, in 1995, were sort of touching on some of these uh, issues that we touch on today on legal immigration, on do we curtail it? Do we only allow people that are considered high-skilled immigrants to come to the country? So all of these questions that we had then under a democratic administration, actually, um, are sort of resurfacing now, um, particularly this idea um, of the merit immigration system and judging who comes here based on their merit. Are they qualified? Do they have a, a high education? Are they working in high-skilled jobs? And this is important because I think it sort of nods to the idea of policy deciding who is allowed to come to the United States, who is who is worthy of coming to the U.S. And it's a question that I think has come up over and over again in these immigration um, debates uh, and one that we're sort of tackling now. Um, and and some argue is not helpful because, in fact, it would hurt the economy to only bring in high-skilled immigrants. Um, others that it say that it's just not, uh, doesn't align with American values to decide who is worthy and who is not. So these questions, they keep coming up and they're coming up through these sort of policies that are not unique to this time that have been brought up before, but create a whole list of complicated questions. Can I just add one thing, though, because as cyclical as I think we all agree this debate is, there are a couple of factors right now that I think make the debate much more heated, much more pitched. And among them, I'd say, you know, we're having a much bigger debate right now in America about the future of the social safety net. And as such, the question of who gets to be who gets to partake of that social safety net is more fraught than I think it has been at other times. Mm -hmm. I would also say, you know, the, the, the sort of advances in culture that we've made that have particularly sort of revolved around um, attitudes towards minorities, especially young brown minorities, that then I think has left some people feeling shut out of the conversation culturally. Um, which I think is probably being a, a bit euphemistic, but <laughs> but nonetheless, um, it is what it is. And then and then the other piece is the parties themselves. I mean, there's almost racial partisanship, which is to say, you know, you look at the last presidential vote. I mean, people of color overwhelmingly vote Democratic. Um, and that divide is sharper and deeper than it has been in a very, very long time, if not ever. Um, and so all of those factors, and they are by no means you know, all of them, but they are particular to this moment. And I think they've um, conspired to make the immigration debate, though, though cyclical, 
particularly poisonous and particularly angry um, in a way that we necessarily maybe haven't seen in a while, you know, in other cycles. What's interesting about what you say, Alex, I mean, this question of the shifts, the evolution of America's social safety net and uh, the evolution of America's immigration policy are very intertwined. Um, We recently published an an adaptation from, from David Frum's book, Trumpocracy, the corruption of the American Republic. But what does David really think? (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. One of the things that he's argued is that, in fact, America's policy evolutions on both of these issues, on the social safety net and on immigration, point in different directions. One of the realities that From has been a minority voice within conservative thought on uh, for a while has been about immigration. There, There had been sort of over the past decade plus, something of a conservative consensus about legal immigration that uh, that legal immigration from the quote unquote right places um, was a good thing, that it was helpful to America's bottom line, that corporate leaders are out saying, yes, we need a strong immigration of the right types of quote unquote high skilled workers uh, from the right places. And um, from I'll quote here from his story um, in which he talks about what he thinks needs to happen to restore stability to American society. He says, quote, that means accepting that the Affordable Care Act is here to stay and to work to reform it so that it costs less and protects middle class families more. It means slowing the pace of immigration so that the existing population of the country does not feel it is being displaced and replaced. Economists will argue that a country with a slow-growing population needs more immigrants to sustain the growth of its labor force. But a population is a citizenry as well as a labor force, and when it grows slowly, it can less easily assimilate newcomers. Immigration is to natural population increase as wine is to food, a good complement a bad substitute. What do you all think of that argument? The argument that he's making is saying that you need to grow your citizenry, right, first and foremost before you accept other immigrants is what he's saying. Right, or that there's like maybe a magical ratio. I shouldn't uh, argue in our colleague's voice too extensively because we are going to have him here on Radio Atlantic in the near future to make the argument himself and to tell us a little bit more about his book. Uh, can't can't argue in his voice too much, especially since we immigrants are running the shop. <laughs> this is the, the interesting thing that I find in the U.S. <laughs> is that we are consistently – well, not consistently, but over the decades, we've changed U.S. immigration policy – whether to limit who comes in or to open the door to who comes in. And the, the we consistently have this conversation about who, who gets to come and when do they get to come. And what I find interesting about the U.S. in particular and having these discussions is the way that it's viewed from outside, from the world. I think the U.S. is in this really interesting position where the way that we shape our immigration policy um, is – the, the U.S. is sort of seen as this nation of immigrants, right? And it's sort of – um, seen as a beacon of hope for so many immigrants around the world. And I don't get the sense that the, the every country is like that. I think the U.S. finds itself in a very precarious situation in this case in the way that we craft and think about welcoming immigrants. Yeah, there's an argument that across the globe in democracies of many stripes in different places, including Western democracies such as Germany and France, um, but also in places like uh, Singapore, that 
a country needs a certain degree of ethnic homo- homogeneity in order to support uh, a a robust safety net that countries that are more ethnically homogenous, where people by and large feel like parts of a common us, <laughs> um, are more generous with their benefits. Um, and that it is because America has found itself um, s- such a beacon and bastion of a multi-ethnic democracy. It's precisely that that has been in tension with uh, Americans' desire for a social safety net. Well, I feel like that that assumes that there's no assimilation among immigrants, right? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, now now I'm just like, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I need to spend more time with the argument. I think. Yeah, I think that I think this is one of the interesting questions. Um, that to, is there a tension between uh, the robustness of um, of the America's foundation that it gives that it offers to all of its citizens for making a life and the uh, the generosity with which the country welcomes newcomers. Um, my own my own family's history on this front and the history of the of our group of immigrants, my parents and grandparents and their grandparents and what have you, is pretty interesting for it. What it says about assimilation in particular. In the nineties, so my family is Guyanese. We consider ourselves West Indian. Um, West Indian immigrants were pretty unusual and they were of note to a band of American sociologists in the 90s because we had seemed to defy what had been a truism of thought about immigrant assimilation um, for decades. The best story that I've read about this was a 1996 story by um, Malcolm Gladwell called Black Like Them in The New Yorker in which he wrote, quote, In American history, immigrants have always profited from assimilation. As they have adopted the language and customs of this country, they have sped their passage into the mainstream. West Indians are the first group of people for whom that has not been true. Their advantage depends on their remaining outsiders, on remaining unfamiliar, on being distinct by custom, culture, and language. So this was the interesting finding that – you know, it was once thought of that, you know, the more you assimilated, the more your children sounded American and dressed American. If you were an immigrant, the better off your children would be. And then these West Indian immigrants started coming in waves to the U.S. And this did not hold true. Their children would assimilate and their socioeconomic performance was suffering as a result of that assimilation. And so sociologists started to wonder what was happening. And there's a complex mix of factors here, but the evidence suggested and now suggests that what was happening is that – was racism, <laughs> basically, in short. That as long as they were distinct, as long as we were linguistically and uh, sartorially distinct from American blacks – from African-Americans, folks could look on us highly. They're like, oh, these folks are proof. These West Indian immigrants are proof that uh, that if you just come here and you're hardworking and also you talk a little bit like this, you can oh. succeed. Um, so West Indians were held up by employers, for example, uh, as examples that just of American meritocracy, that if you just did hard work, unlike these folks who were born here, 
that you could thrive, that America was still that up from the bootstraps Horatio Aljo story, um, uh, American dream. And when we assimilated, we assimilated into that same cluster of stereotypes and stereotype and discrimination that held back African-Americans, that the more we spoke black, the more we uh, we dressed black, the more we were perceived as black, and therefore the more we suffered from the same socioeconomic disadvantages that black Americans came to face. Part of what was most interesting about this story is that you go just a few miles away you just cross the border into Canada, and the situation is the reverse. Malcolm Gladwell, who wrote the story, Blacks Like Them, he grew up in Canada. I was born in Canada also. But in Canada, in Toronto, where he was from, stereotypes about West Indians were rampant. Um, people thought that West Indians were, uh, were lazy, were crime-ridden, etc., Quote, the West Indians were the first significant brush with blackness that white, smug, comfortable Torontonians had ever had. They had no bad blacks to contrast with the newcomers, no African-Americans to serve as a safety valve for their prejudices, no way to perform America's crude racial triage. So depending on which side of the border you're on, the story of my folks, the West Indians, huh. tells you so something different. You know, it's interesting, Matt. I wrote a piece actually for The Atlantic um, about the myth of sort of Asian Americans being, you know, the model minority as they are sometimes dubbed. Um, my mother and grandmother are from Burma. Um, and that stereotype of the Horatio Alger bootstrapping immigrant that is frequently used in um, conjunction with the Asian American immigrant has actually resulted in a papering over of many of the very real struggles that America's Asian Americans uh, contend with. I mean, I think people don't realize that the fastest growing um, community of undocumented immigrants is actually Asian American, one point, I think three or four million and counting. And yet the applications to DACA, for example, on the part of Asian Americans are much, much lower than they are for um, folks from uh, Latin American countries and South American countries. And part of that is Asian Americans themselves uh, feeling a great deal of shame when it comes to their undocumented status. And part of it is also there's no outreach into certain communities. The language barrier is part of it, but there's not a perceived need in the same way. And there are a host of other factors where Asian Americans actually aren't excelling counter mm. to popular belief. For example, I think Thai Americans um, have some of the lowest per capita income. There are questions relating to educational, education attainment among Vietnamese Americans, the Hmong community that you mentioned in the United States. But because they've been sort of lumped together as kind of the minority that's doing so well in America and is thriving, there isn't the same concern and outreach and, and coordination on the problems that, and the issues that they do face. Yeah. So it's kind of um, – it's interesting once you dig deeper into each of these communities because, of course, there is no you know broad bucket into which all immigrants should be placed. They all face different struggles. Um, the, digger, the more you, you get into the sort of various um, – ethnic groups that have come here and the challenges they face, they, the more you realize that there is, you know, there is no blanket sort of um, refrain that applies to any or all of them. Yeah, absolutely. And also the more it reveals that the attitudes that we hold towards 
our immigrants and ourselves um, are so determined by um, the context of the moment. Um, I had a friend point out um, uh, once in response to there was a uh, you know the the um, outrage of the day was a um, was an ad that traded on the stereotype of Mexican Americans as being lazy. My friend said, you know, you got to choose your racist stereotype like either mexican immigrants are taking your jobs <laughs> right. or they can't work like the both can't be true at once <laughs> with that <laughs> immigrants immigrants let's turn to keepers what have you heard seen watched read listened to recently that you do not want to forget alex can we start with you well, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I never do this, but I feel like I should, given how um, heated this debate is and how much interest there is in American immigration and, and maybe some history behind it. So everyone should go find a copy of the friend the, the book that I mentioned, A Decade of Betrayal, Mexican Repatriation in the 1930s, and that's by Francisco Valderrama. It's a it's kind of a, a lesser known title, but it chronicles this incredible chapter. And by incredible, I mean particularly awful chapter uh, in America in the 1920s that I think is incredibly salient right now. And I should note that when I say deportations, they were being called repatriations mm. at the time, which is an odd, which is a misnomer given the fact that mm-hmm. many of these people were yeah. born in America. Mm. And to suggest that they were getting repatriated to Mexico was nothing short of um, entirely and utterly fabricated. Yeah, sort of like but, if they um, tried to repatriate me to Guyana, a country that exactly, I had never or me to Burma. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so anyway, I think in these moments, it really bears. Um, remembering what we've done before and where we've been before as a country. Yeah. Wow. Priscilla. On a much lighter note, my keeper is completely unintentional. Um, (laughs) I recently watched Stranger Things. I'm very behind on the shows I should be watching on Netflix. No apologies. But I have, so I finally watched the two seasons and Now, anytime a light flickers or I hear a drip drip from (laughs) a sink or whatever it is, I immediately am taken back to every scene of Stranger Things. So maybe we're we're in the upside down right now. I mean, maybe. (laughs) Um, I'm not, you know, I'm seeing those lights flicker in my home every once in a while and I'm ready to to communicate with the upside down. Awesome. Eleven, is that you? (laughs) (laughs) So my keeper is very topical this week. Um. I served on a jury yesterday. Well, I went to I went to serve my civic duty yesterday. I was not ultimately, you know, I was not ultimately picked for the jury. However, I went through voir dire. I was wow. I spent the day at a courthouse being all civic. And you know, it it was basically my my first time having that rush of oh, American civic duty. I mean, besides voting is one thing, of course, like being in the ballot booth often, you know, it it has that that little surge, that sense of, oh, I'm exercising my privileges as an American citizen. Um, But it's hard 
for me to be in a courthouse uh, to be you know talk we at the beginning of the day yesterday of course they play the cheesy video that's like you know what does it mean to be a juror and why do you sacrifice this day or several days potentially of your time um, to try to help this machinery of American justice move forward and there are a few contexts in which we get such lectures one of them was the naturalization ceremony where I stood and forswore and abjured any foreign prince or potentate, state or sovereign. There is that. I, I almost wish, I mean, jury duty is a an approximation of this, I think, for a lot of Americans, an approximation of this moment where your sort of constitutional responsibilities are made uh, visible to you uh, and tangible to you in this very real way. You have to sacrifice days of your life. Um, to participate in the legal system. Naturalization is one that I almost wish that all Americans could participate in. Um, that um, actually having to stand to raise your right hand to swear those words, the saying of those words was one of the most surprisingly meaningful things that I've ever had to do. Um, so jury duty, uh, <laughs> it is Always an inconvenience. <laughs> um, uh, but it was my first time actually going to do the thing. And uh, and good on you. Thank you. I don't want to forget it. Even if you're Canadian, I really like the fact that you're buying into this whole thing. You're really assimilating well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I try. I try. Still, still part of me, still part of me watches The Crown and is like, you know, we're missing out, aren't we? (laughs) Um, Alex, Priscilla, it is a pleasure as always. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Priscilla. And that'll do it for this week's Radio Atlantic. This episode was produced and edited by Kevin Townsend with production support from Kim Lau and Diana Douglas. Thanks to my co-host, Alex Wagner, and to our esteemed co-host, Jeff, who you'll hear from again next week. Thank you to Priscilla Alvarez for joining us, and thanks, as always, to the one and only John Batiste for stirring our soul every week with the battle hymn. Leave us a voicemail with your contact information and your thoughts on the episode at 202 266-7600. Check us out at facebook.com slash radioatlantic and theatlantic.com slash radio. Catch the show notes in the episode description. And if you like what you're hearing, rate and review us in Apple Podcasts and subscribe in your preferred podcast app. But most importantly, thank you for listening. If you have a home that you are proud of, may you also be its pride. We'll see you next week. This episode of Radio Atlantic is brought to you by Microsoft Copilot for Security, completely integrated into your organization's security infrastructure. This AI companion is informed by 78 trillion signals daily to help you catch the threats others miss and reinforce your team's security posture efficiently. It synthesizes data from numerous sources and can analyze 500 lines of code in under a minute to put critical guidance at defenders' fingertips. It helps teams detect threats and take action in minutes instead of hours or days, which can reduce attack investigation time by up to 40%. Copilot also serves as a key second pair of eyes, upskilling junior analysts with advanced capabilities, which frees up senior staff to focus on strategic priorities, all while safeguarding your data privacy. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash Copilot for security.